my friend Greg, who works for BC Timber Sales, he often says that people need to they need to feel a tree, they need to touch a tree. Um, so that's why something like uh, Big Lonely Doug, which is growing in a clear cut, is such a beacon for people. And that book I mentioned, Harley Rustad's book, he describes it as an obelisk in a desert. And I feel like that is a, a useful way of looking at these trees because they really do stand out and they become markers of the mind as much as anything. It's a marker of what was. Like We can look around and imagine the landscape with much more bigger trees. And I think it's a marker of what could be. So the big trees feel to me like a portal between times. Hey folks, what's happening? Welcome to Your Forest. My name is Matthew Kristoff. And on this podcast, we talk about the environment and the science of sustainability. Today, we're talking big old trees. Who doesn't like big old trees, right? I mean, as Amanda says in this episode, you'd have to be some kind of monster. (laughs) So, yeah, I I was fortunate enough to read a, a really fascinating book called Tracking Giants. Big Trees, Tiny Triumphs, and Misadventures in the Forest. And the book was written by Amanda Lewis, our guest today. She makes her living as a book editor and writer and obviously an author. (laughs) And uh, yeah, she came on the show to tell us about her story of, you know, she she left her life as a, a stressed out book editor in Toronto and came back to the West Coast and fell back in love with the forest and big trees and wanted to take on a big task. And so she figured big trees are the one. She's going to write about them. And uh, she learned all kinds of things along the way. She did such an incredible job of balancing all the values and balancing all the perspectives and and coming out with a fair and even and really emotionally involved and emotionally connected book. It was just, it was just such a great read and I had such an excellent conversation with her. And uh, yeah, I've never really talked big trees. We talk forest management, but we've never specifically focused on big old trees, right? So that's what today's all about. Big old trees with Amanda Lewis. Maybe that's what I should have called it instead of tracking giants. Maybe we'll see. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Sponsors for this episode, West Fraser is the number one sponsor for 2023, and they have been for a while. Without West Fraser, I would not be able to record and edit and produce this podcast the way I want to do it. They let me do whatever I want, and I am so very grateful. Thank you, West Fraser, for your support. And Greenlink Forestry is the other sponsor. They have been with me since the beginning. Again, I couldn't do this without them. Thank you, Greenlink. So yeah, without any further messing around, let's dive into this discussion around big old trees, what they mean to us as people, as emotional beings, uh, how we can start to think about them differently and start to connect to them and, and what they mean to our society. Here we go. First of all, yeah, I, I, I really love the book. It was immediately very fun. Immediately very, uh, very transparent and like honest. You're just like, 
It's, mm-hmm. It feels like you're you're writing like your brain works, which was cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, and you know, it's it's actually been a, for quite a while. I've been thinking about. I would like to have somebody on who what, who has like a, a deep passion for and love of nature, but is not a uh, like a scientist or a forester or is directly like their income and, and all that stuff is directly tied to the, and so I wanted to have someone on who like, like yourself. Right. And yeah. uh, so I, I was really excited to be able to read your book and, and, and especially on this topic of tracking big, huge old trees, right. Cause there's mm-hmm. such a emotional connection and such a, a driving force behind a lot of the popular culture and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, yeah, I really I I love the book first of all. Well, and thanks. uh yeah, <laughs> before we get into it, before we get into the specific book, I I think we need to just like dive into to yourself a little bit and I sure. I'd like to know like what's your deal? How did you how did how did this happen? If you were to just like explain yourself to people and how you came here, how would you how would you go about doing that? <laughs> how I came to be this uh, certain collection of molecules. <laughs> yes, exactly. I love yeah. It. So that, I mean, the long story is, I was born on a summer day. Um, I, I was I was born in <laughs> Ireland, and I moved to Canada when I was four, and grew up in Surrey, which is outside of Vancouver in BC. Mm-hmm. And um, I really loved that this West Coast landscape where I live now. And it was just a really, really big part of my life as a kid. It was like playing in the forest. And I so much so that when I went to university, I didn't want to leave the coast. I decided to stay and I went to UBC. And I really fell in love with books and publishing and editing and the way to get a job in publishing at that time, and still to an extent, but it's different now a bit, but was to go to Toronto and get a job. So I moved out to Toronto to work in book publishing and ended up staying there for eight and a half years and was really, really homesick that whole time for um, this landscape. And I did well in my career. Like I, I was working for the biggest publisher, Penguin Random House, and really had great mentors. But uh, I just started to realize now I've something's got to give. Like, am I always just going to live here in downtown Toronto? And I had a good life there and everything, but the turning point for me was, I remember one, it was kind of February, March, which, I mean, you might know this from Edmonton, but definitely in Toronto, it's like the winter seems interminable, you know, yeah, yeah. people are crunching along on the salty sidewalks and I'm like, oh my God, it's never going to end. Yeah. And I had, I had this dream that I was walking along a forest path and I could hear the the fir cones under my feet and I could hear an eagle and I could hear the surf crashing and I could just see these big trees. And then I woke up like in a cold sweat and I thought, okay, like now I really just need to get back there. And so I decided to give notice on my apartment and move back to the West Coast. And that kind of big life decision is super hard on you. Like it's, it takes a lot of mental energy to just say no to one part of your life and move back. So I was already pretty burned out from my career and this constant questing I had to get ahead and in a, uh, an industry that's pretty hard to, it's hard to support yourself in. Like you don't get paid that much and the hours are long and there's a lot of emotional intellectual labor. So I was feeling pretty burned out from that. And Mm -hmm. just with the move across the country, I felt just super burned out. And then I immediately started up with this new job that was also intense in publishing and um, 
just was really feeling tapped. And I remember sitting on my couch for most of that fall, like watching Downton Abbey, (laughs) really (laughs) trying to, trying to just settle and make friends, like reconnect with old friends, but everything shifts. And that spring I started to get out more hiking in the North shore mountains, which are just a short drive from Vancouver and started going on these little day hikes. And I'd always loved day hiking, but I'd never done an overnight hike or a backpack. Um, like, you know, car camping for sure. Like I'm all Mm. about it. Uh, Canadian tradition. Um, but I thought, oh, you know, I'm starting to feel more like myself because I was back in this landscape that I love so much. And, but being an editor, you know, I wanted to put a frame on it. And my one year anniversary was coming up being back on the coast. And I thought maybe I'll start a blog where I can capture some of these outdoor adventures little day trips because I'm not a typical adventurer. Like maybe that will be interesting to people. And I mentioned this idea to my friend, Kate Harris, and she's an adventurer and author. And we met when I worked on her book, Lands of Lost Borders, which is a travel memoir about cycling from uh, Istanbul to India. So she's like a hardcore adventurer. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so what do you think about this uh, blog idea? And she's like, oh, like not great like <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't love the idea but she just read this book called big lonely doug by harley rustad and that book is about this 66 meter douglas fir that grows near port renfrew on vancouver island mm-hmm. and it's included on this thing called the bc big tree registry which is a database of the biggest known trees in bc and she said so she'd read about that in the book and she'd read specifically about this thing called champion trees. And the champion trees are the biggest of their species. And I'd never heard of them. And she said, Why don't you just this is over text, by the way. She's like, Why don't <laughs> why don't you go visit all the champion trees? And I said, Yeah, okay, that seems totally doable for <laughs> for a book editor in Vancouver. And uh I committed to it on the spot and started a blog the next day called Tracking Giants. Nice. Yeah. That sounds like, yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask you that. I was like, well, yeah, what was the motivation for the book? You're like, my friend told me to do it. <laughs> yeah. She's like, I've got an idea for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't this like, it wasn't this like, yeah, it wasn't this emotional, like, you know, walk up to this big tree and just like felt totally captured and enthralled by it and wanted to like, yeah, tell its story. You're just like, yeah, my friend told me. <laughs> my friend told me. And, and yeah. I was just looking for some big goal, right? Yeah. 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 You're, you're looking, yeah. You're looking for something that means that is important to you. So yes. yeah, absolutely. And who doesn't love big trees, right? Yeah. Like I mean, you gotta be some yeah. kind of monster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, exactly. Precisely. So I, uh, I wanted to ask you when it comes to writing, like mm-hmm. what? What is writing to you? What is the ultimate goal in writing <laughs> anything, let alone this book? The first answer that popped to hit my mind was writing is such a pain in the ass. Um, but <laughs> writing, I like it. <laughs> writing is, it's I think one of the most difficult and most rewarding things. Um, okay. So I work as a book editor, and I've been doing this for a long time, and. Most people think they have a book in them. And I often say like, well, actually, 100% of people have a spooky skeleton inside of them. Like, <laughs> not, not everyone has a book. And yeah. that's okay. And why would you want to write a book anyway? Because it's so hard. And is just an immense use of time. And but but the reason I work in publishing and editing is I think that books are still one of the last ways to reward deep thought. 
And we're so distracted these days with, you know, the latest flashy Netflix show or whatever. And, you know, I, I'm a diehard John Wick fan too, I should say. Like, <laughs> I like TV. I was watching John Wick last night while doing some yeah. file management, right? It's all good. <laughs> um, but the thing with writing is it's, it's just a way to reach one person. And I, I think there's something so pure and crystalline about having truly effective communication. And that for me is like this holy grail of writing where you're like, ah, oh, if I could just keep refining it, then it might land with the person. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, I get that. Like I get the idea that it's like, you're trying to, you're trying to write something true, like truly mm -hmm. true mm -hmm. and, and transparent somehow. And, yeah, trying to reach some truth that was otherwise uh, not clear to someone, maybe. Yeah, like it's, I don't know. I, I'm not a writer. Like I'm actually, I'm, not, I'm grammatically not good. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. <laughs> there, are, but, there are programs for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Uh, the part, part of the problem, I blame French immersion for screwing up where my E's go. <laughs> right, but, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> My wife always gives me trouble with that. She's just like, we put ease on the end of everything. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's my schooling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, but, but yeah, I do find I have a, a deep appreciation for well put together sentences, right? Like a, a good, maybe not just, not just the written word, but the spoken word that is very well just put together in a very specific way and almost like a scientific paper and that every word has yeah. a very specific purpose for being there. If you took any word out, it would mean something entirely different. And just like the power of words is, is, is fascinating to me. And yeah, so I have a deep appreciation for that, but I, I like to ask writers like, yeah, what, what is it to you? What are you trying to do? Like, what's the, yeah. Yeah. And when you said about the, the power of words, like with a scientific paper or that, um, I mean, when you're writing to a certain limit, like in a scientific paper, I think that's that constraint is a wonderful thing or mm. like the best copywriting. Like when you see an advertisement that's so smart and sharp and you're like, yes, that is a great use of words. I mean, not yeah. the end goal is capitalism, but like you can appreciate sure. it for what, <laughs> for what it is. Um, yeah. But like my goal with this book was to really reach people who are like me or who feel maybe fearful of the forest or feel mm. that they don't deserve to be there um, because they don't have the knowledge. And that was really my base when I started out um, was I knew a little bit about trees and certainly like trees and had looked at it from the angle of um, environmentalism and, and that side, but yeah. didn't know, like, <laughs> didn't really know what I was getting into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I honestly, I didn't, I had heard of the big tree registry before, mm -hmm. uh, but that's it. I knew yeah. nothing about it. I didn't know about the champ. I assumed there was some kind of, someone was keeping score out there, right? Like, Somebody, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, whether or not they, yeah, I, I wasn't really sure though. So um, this was, I definitely learned a lot from reading the book about, you know, the inner workings of that. And and you had great dialogue on some of the the inner conflicts about some of the ideas and, and stuff. Like it was, it was really enjoyable. Um, and it, it, step, it stepped me outside of my own boreal universe as well, right? So that was great because right. I, I know very little about the coast, if I'm honest. Like, I, if I, I'm a forester, but if I came to the coast, I, I'm, I know as much as you do. Like, I don't. Yes. <laughs> like I'm, yeah. I, so it's, uh, so I'm, I am no, I'm not someone that should be, so anyone should be listening to in that regard. 
So yeah, so so I really enjoyed it in that in that way. So um, let's try a little light on the Big Tree Registry. So your friend tells you, hey, there's this Big Tree Registry. There's champion trees. That sounds really cool. What's a champion tree? Okay, the biggest the biggest tree of their species in in BC. how many trees are on the Big Tree Registry? How many champions are there? Yeah. And when you started to look into this, how overwhelming did this task become? <laughs> yeah. So the BC Big Tree Registry is uh, an online database of trees, and there are hundreds of trees in the registry. And to be in the registry, you have to be a native tree. So we'll just uh, okay. say that. So it's not yeah. all trees. Um, right. And then you could just say, like, all of BC is on the registry, but yeah. native trees. And they are trees that are people will just notice. Like a lot of them are found by foresters or someone is staring at that big apple tree or not apple tree, but like a Gary Oak in their backyard and thinking that's pretty big. Like I wonder how big it is. And right. the trees are recorded in the registry with a tree score. And the way the tree score comes, it's the combination of points that comes from measuring the diameter of the tree and the height and the crown. And as we'll probably I didn't realize hear, that. Yeah. I didn't realize that the, it's like, it's literally like a trophy hunting thing. It like is that's literally that's like what, trophy hunting. Yeah. Yeah. For those that don't know, like I, I, I am a hunter and I've, and, and I have scored animals that I've, out of curiosity that I've, that I've, that I've hunted. And yeah, you, that's what you do. You take all the measurements and you add it all up and it makes this score. And if you get above a certain score, you get into the record books and it's this big deal, yeah. right? And I didn't realize that that was, that's a, that is fascinating because I would have thought the big tree people, like that community, <laughs> you know, the granola people, I'll just yeah. say that because it's, oh. it's a fun way of, of oh, yeah, hey, you know, Alberta, right? what's up? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got to throw it out there, right? Like that's, it's, it's. I would have thought they would have just wanted to stay away from that idea, right? Because it is, it's yeah. kind of like a, it's kind of an icky idea to like, I I'm going to put this quantifiable yeah. score on something that's alive. Yeah. Exactly. I think it's a little icky myself, but it is just a sorting mechanism like anything else. Yeah. And yeah. Um, there's a different tree ranking system used in the States. And I should say that the BC Big Tree Registry is not unique. So the idea mm-hmm. for the registry, I'll just zoom out a bit. Um, sure. It, the idea for the BC Big Tree Registry came from this guy named Randy Stoltman, who is a famed BC Big Tree tracker. And he's like really held up as the guy, you know, in BC. Yeah. And he grew up in um, the North Shore Mountains and would wander around cataloging these big trees in the you know, West Van and the North Shore and on the island, on Vancouver Island. And he thought, okay, so I've got all these records of trees and mm-hmm. it'd be cool to start our own BC big tree registry because in a province known for its superlative trees, like we really have some of the biggest and best trees. And so he had that idea, but the idea for registries, I believe originated in Maryland in the 1920s. And it was a forester, the chief forester came up with this idea because Maryland was also logging out some of its biggest trees at the time. And he thought we should capture what's left. And that's kind of the sad side of the, of tree registries is they usually come from um, a goal to capture what's left of what mm-hmm. was. And I feel that if we really looked at registries and why they exist, the purpose of them should really be to become obsolete in and of themselves. Because if we just ah. saved the big trees, we wouldn't need to catalog them. Mm-hmm. But be that as it may, Randy Stoltman had had this idea and he had banker's boxes full of photos and drawings and maps um, of these trees and he 
released this wonderful book, which is still the definitive guide to BC called, um, I might get the title slightly wrong, but it's like the hiking guide to the big trees of BC. And it's, it's the book that a lot of BC big tree trackers still use, you know, but the thing about trees is they are mortal and they die and they Mm -hmm. grow bigger than this other tree over here and they lose limbs and the way marking points like a sandbar might have moved in the decades since Stoltman released that map. So yeah. it's an old resource. Randy Stoltman died in his early 30s, tragically, in a mountaineering accident. And after the confusion over that early death, a lot of the records just were kind of lost. Uh... Um, but eventually, there was a push to reanimate this BCP tree registry. And it was digitized, I believe, in 2014 um, at UBC's Faculty of Forestry. And before that, it had been passed, the records had kind of been passed around between government agencies. But once it was digitized, um, that's when it was like kind of reborn. And that's when I came into it was in 2018. And I came to know trees and the registry really as an Excel spreadsheet. Right. Yeah. 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 Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about this spreadsheet is it's like this artificial way to look at trees. And it was all fig- it was all just numbers. And I'm not a numbers person at all. But as we talked about with tree score, is it ranks the trees according to the score, and you can see what is the biggest arbutus or the biggest this or the biggest that. And the champions are the biggest of their species, as I mentioned. At the time, there were 43 champion trees. Last time I checked the registry, there were about 54. But that number is always going to fluctuate as trees are found or as they die. And I thought, 43 trees, 52 weeks, let's go. Like, I'm an overachiever. I can find (laughs) these trees. I can take some time off for holidays. And most of them seem to grow around my home in Vancouver, but really they grow all over the province in totally different yeah. types of terrain. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is, it, it is fascinating. So getting deeper into it, what is, what do you think it is exactly? Like if you had to put it into words, um, that makes big old trees so magnetic, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. they seem to pull people into their grandeur, right? Like, yeah. What is it that's so spectacular about big trees and, and what, what is their importance to society, do you think? Well, so there's a bunch of bunch of answers to that. But I think the immediate thing for me is with these big trees and why they are such a pull is they are some of the oldest things on the coast, like oldest living things on the coast. And on the coast specifically, and I should say not all big trees are old and not all old trees are big. Um, But I'm thinking about the biggest trees, which would be like your Sitka spruce, Douglas fir, um, cedars, yellow and western red cedar. Um, They tend to get pretty big. And I think they draw us in because they represent that deeper time and that slower way of being. And something I came to realize over the course of the project is that trees really just grow for themselves and they grow with others and they're not just doing it for the sake of getting bigger and they're not like competing and they tend to grow big together. So you'll often find a lot of big trees in one big grow patch, like one big grow site. And that was really interesting to me when I realized that because I had originally put all this pressure on trees as a way to answer 
my own questions about my life because I was going through this burnout and trying to reestablish myself on the coast and thought like, oh, surely when I stand in front of a big tree, I can just ask my questions and I'll get all my answers and everything will make sense. And that wasn't my experience when I first found these trees because they aren't all big and they aren't all grandiose or or even beautiful by any standard. Sure. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I was just like, huh, is this a champion? Like, what is the point of this project? And it really became more about like <laughs> life. Like, what am I doing? It's turning this big existential thing. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that the people really want to um, – be in touch with these trees. And my friend Greg, who works for BC Timber Sales, he often says that people need to, they need to feel a tree, they need to touch a tree. Um, So that's why something like uh, Big Lonely Doug, which is growing in a clear cut, is such a beacon for people. And that book I mentioned, Harley Rustad's book, he describes it as an obelisk in a desert. And I feel like that is a useful way of looking at these trees because they really do stand out and they become markers of the mind as much as anything. Or if you think about a big grove or a small grove of big trees um, on Vancouver Island called Cathedral Grove, it's very uh, well visited because it's right on the highway. And that's also a great thing for people because they can experience these big trees and it's a marker of what was like we can look around and imagine the landscape with much more bigger trees and i think it's a marker of what could be so the big trees Mm. feel to me like a portal between times yeah i love that yeah Mm -hmm. yeah the 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 two quotes that i that i loved in the book and i'm not even sure 100 percent that it was you or if it was you quoting somebody else but i'll say them and you can tell me um they they summed up the, the idea of big trees and their importance so well was Big trees upset the temporal scale. And I was like, they upset the temporal scale. So yeah, like they, like you were saying, they bring you back. They make you wonder what was before, you know, uh, colonized Canada became a thing, right? Like mm-hmm. what was going on back then? Um, and then also the other one was big trees hold our hope and our guilt. And yes. Like, yeah, that that kind of nails it, right? Like it's we're like, oh, I hope there's, I hope this doesn't go away. I hope that there's more of this. And also, damn, why isn't there more of this? <laughs> what have we done? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so I thought those were excellent. And I, I found throughout, um, cause clearly you're, you're, you're a person, at least through your writing, it seems, um, you're a person who's very in touch with, uh, the artistic endeavor and trying to explain things in a way in which people can internalize them. Uh, based off of like a lot of the people that you quoted in the book and it was i i found like you did an excellent job of of helping me to step into your mind and like your feelings your emotions in the in those moments and i thought that was that was crucial and it was in a not it was in a very non uh posh way right like it was it was very it was was very like approachable and that's what Mm -hmm. i that's why i think it helped me to um, to understand your 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 journey a little bit more, right? It was it was great. The idea of like champion trees, okay. So now the biggest one, uh, yeah. Throughout the book, like you discussed some of the controversy even within the big tree tracking community around having champion trees and naming champion trees and having them be this artifact that people can go and see, like kind of a a, a spectacle, right? Mm-hmm. And there was some and and 
there is there's a lot of debate it seems like going back about okay is it better is it a net positive or a net negative to be doing all of this and so i wanted to i wanted to know um your perspective on that like do you think the idea of having a champion tree and naming it and and putting the the focus on that so that more people go see it and appreciate it um is it worth the risk of you know potentially maybe killing that tree from mm-hmm. or whatever or maybe uh yeah just like there's there's risks involved with with making something a spectacle right and you discussed that a lot in the book so yeah i wanted to know your your internal feelings about it and where you lie do you think that it's a uh, it, it's uh it's a net positive to society to be able to to point these things out and and show them to people and it's worth the whatever kind of risks might be incurred yeah i mean it's i i have a lot of answers milling around about that um, I do too. <laughs> yeah, my my feeling is it's it's almost like using a blue whale as a symbol to then look at the forest, and then you start looking at plankton. You know, um, is that you ne- almost need this big thing to draw people in because people are busy and they're you know they're dropping the kids off at soccer and they're trying to submit that thing on time and all of that. Um, yeah. And so the trees do stop you in your tracks, especially when you realize like this tree is the size of a bus or, or whatever <laughs> is the metric that we're using. Um, yeah. But my friend, uh, Greg, who I just mentioned, who works for BC Timber Sales, he, as much as he says people need to see these trees and touch them, he also says that people can love a tree to death. And yeah. these trees become almost the sacrifice for us because a tree like um big lonely dug or or more accurately like hyperion hyperion is a big redwood in california and i think i believe it's the tallest tree in the world if i'm not mistaken on that one as far as i know it is yeah yeah and people for a long time its location was concealed because people didn't Mm -hmm. want the tree to um to be destroyed which is a, a really weird thing because why would you trek through the forest to go destroy something um but the nature of meeting with these trees is you can trample their roots and people were like pooping and leaving garbage around the tree. Yeah. And it's like not really respectful. So eventually the park just said, no, you, it's actually illegal to visit this tree and you can yeah. get fined or you could face jail time for visiting this tree, which is, it's a, it's a very strange stance to take on a tree. Right. Um, yeah. But I think that this is the the risk of, highlighting and almost idolizing uh, one tree over the whole forest and they become almost like the poster children of the forest and in the book i talk about how like big lonely doug is a symbol for the conservation movement the same way that when i was growing up like a duck soaked in oil was an environmental symbol or um like kids today who probably know about like a turtle with a plastic straw up its nose like every generation has its symbol yeah. And I think it does a disservice to the trees to just symbolize them. Like they don't ask for it. They don't ask to be put on a registry or they don't care if you visit them or measure them. Like it's not really about that. And yeah. that's why I wanted to bring in these other metrics of appreciating trees that aren't just the size um, or the number of them left like it, yeah. on, in, in the province. And the idea of naming a tree, it's, it's funny. It's like the tree almost becomes like a pet, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and sure. I think that is a bit problematic, but it also is a way to, to connect with that tree. And if you think a bit more 
generously, it's more like a friend and you find a friend in the forest and then you start to visit that friend um, either literally in the forest or in your mind. And so a lot of these trees do have names and that's a convention of BC, or, sorry, not BC, but big tree trackers in general. They they yeah. tend to go find and name something. But I, I find that so colonial because sure yeah, yeah for like sure. <laughs> the, the trees let me put my stamp on it, this totally thing. and my name is in the record books now yeah, yeah. And, and a funny thing about big tree tracking is it's um in the states a lot of the names are uh, they're named after are like generals um yeah. and confederate generals and it's it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. So the names of trees have changed a lot over the years, like the same way we're toppling statues now because, yeah. you know, we, we don't want to revere those people. And yeah. again, the trees don't ask to be named like General Grant or whatever. Um, and and in, in BC, the, the trees are, have like a nautical theme oh, a lot of them. Right. So like the Admiral, um, yeah, yeah. And they're like they have all these nautical names, and it's just it's just like it's kind of funny if you look at it as innocent. It's it's kind of funny, and then you think yeah. about strange names for trees. Most trees are named something like the big tree, the big mm. spruce, um, sure. but it's problematic because the tree it's if you you find it and you name it and you own mm. it and you put it in the registry. Well, the First Nations. <laughs> who've lived there since time immemorial, they know about that tree and mm. they've been monitoring the health of that tree most likely. And they might have a name for it. Like the golden mm. spruce had had a name, you know, before mm. we called it the golden spruce and to just go in and stamp a name on it is I think really disrespectful. Um, so some of the younger tree trackers just don't name the trees at all. Yeah. 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 yeah it is interesting. Like it's, I think, um, like there was a big push against anthropomorphizing things for a while there, right? And I don't think I have an issue with it as long as you're, as long as it's not like applying features to that thing that don't exist, right? As long as you're not, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so like I'm, I think in the end, I'm personally just for myself, I'm cool with it because I think like one good great point that you brought up from uh obviously incredible writer Robin Wall Kimmerer mm -hmm. right like let's appreciate her and her books for a moment like for sure. just just like groundbreaking and just so eye opening for a lot of a lot of people right myself mm -hmm. included um and she made the point in her book that you pointed out in your book that using certain language around trees like language of objectivity right calling right. it 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 takes away a lot of the onus on how you treat that thing because now it's a thing and you can't really disrespect a thing because it's a thing, right? Yeah. And so was, I, I appreciated that that um, you pointing that out in the book, right? Like if we use different pronouns, like maybe you don't want to use like he and she or maybe, but you have something else, some way of um, just put, realizing that, recognizing that this is a living thing mm -hmm. that has its own agenda about like, you know, how to survive and carry on its, its progeny and everything else. And to respect it as such, right? And I thought that was a great point in that trees are part of the ecology and they are part of the the forest and they are part of the living structure of the land, right? Mm -hmm. And to, to treat them as an object rather than something to be respected and revered, not to say that you can't, you know, utilize them for... I mean, you know, you live, you live in a log house. Like, of course, like there's a certain amount of like it's, but 
do that in a respectful way in which you're not reducing resources. Do that in a respectful way in which you're giving back as much as you might be taking away in, 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 in a balanced fashion, right? And yeah, I think I think I think it's easy to be like, don't anthropomorphize something, right? It seems like it seems like you're taking a high road. You're like, that's not scientific. And you're like, yeah. well, I don't know. It's we're emotional beings. That's and to pretend it. that we're like that's so if that helps emotional beings connect to something i'm cool mm-hmm. with it like i i don't personally have an issue but um i mean who am i <laughs> well and and it's also a very western way of looking at the forest right because sure. first nations yeah. might think of a grandmother or a grandfather tree and that's a point that robin wall camera makes is that if you have a maple and you call it it it's very easy to cut it down cuz it's just sure. a thing as you're saying yeah. and but if it's a grandmother and if it's really part of your family and part of the landscape and you know that it has a relationship to the trees around it, you yeah. wouldn't cut your grandmother down or like, yeah. <laughs> most of us are like no. Bugsy Malone <laughs> style. Um, but yeah. And that was a realization I had pretty early on as well with uh-huh. my, um, my friend Hiromi Gato, who's a, a writer who lives out here on the coast. And I was using one of these great guidebooks to trees of Vancouver that were made in like the nineties. And the cool thing about Vancouver is there are arborita, so like the plural of arboretum, a few of them all around the city. And one of them is in the middle of this neighborhood neighborhood called Shaughnessy. And Shaughnessy. Can you explain what that is first? What an arboretum is first? So, so an arboretum is it's almost like a park like setting, and mm-hmm. trees are planted, and it's like a collection of trees, and they're they're grown for scientific reasons or aesthetic reasons. They used to be grown for woodlot reasons, like you might plant a black walnut or an oak and then plan to harvest it in years mm-hmm. to come um, or food bearing trees like nuts. Um, but they originated like many centuries ago. Anyway, the, the idea has been carried yeah. around the world and now they're mostly right. for scientific and aesthetic reasons. And they're almost like a, like a living collection. So mm. there are these arborita around Vancouver and there's one in this neighborhood called Shaughnessy, and people who know Vancouver will know Shaughnessy is the like the place. It's the swankiest, richest place in a city that is like there's the wealth disparity is vast, and right. the the houses are huge, the lots are huge, and it was designed that way to be a very wealthy neighborhood that you had to have the money at the time to buy a lot that was like three times the size of a regular lot. Like it's all just. Bad yeah. news bears from the beginning. Sure. <laughs> but anyway, there's, there's a circular park in Shaughnessy and in that park, there's an arboretum. Yeah. And I, I had no idea. Like I'd never known about this. And I found this map in this old guidebook. And I said to my friend Hiromi, like, do you want to like grab some hot chocolate? It was in like a re- really rainy November day. And I was like, well, I'll drive us to the, this circular park and we can see how many of these trees still survive and so we hopped in the car and um i had this map with like little numbers on it you know and the number equates to like a norway spruce or equates to this type of tree and i was running yeah. around looking for these numbers and i was like oh this tree's gone this tree's still standing this tree i don't know what this tree is there's a hole here like just trying to like look at the book and then look at the landscape. And then I hadn't heard from Hiromi in a while. I look up and she's just standing in front of a tree saying, who are you? Like, Mm. whose child is this? And I thought, ah, this is a way to actually learn from the forest is really to recognize these trees as beings. And I'm doing it. I'm kind of going about it all wrong here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
I, I think like we're also beings that like to quantify things. It helps mm-hmm. us put things into boxes so that we can place them on the shelf and then organize them in a way that allows us to make sense of the whole system, the whole structure, right? Yeah. So I think in the same way, right? Like as, as in the way that I agree, like I think, um, for example, I'm a forester, right? Like I, I grew up, my, both my parents were foresters um, and I grew up edging up against the boreal forest. I spent literally my entire childhood except when I was at school or hockey. I'm Canadian, so hockey, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was outside. I, I got home from school and I went and built a fort or I went and did X, Y, and Z or whatever, right? And I was always outside. And it wasn't until um, as you start to get into to forestry school, into the university, um, then you start looking at them. Yeah, it's more like, okay, manage, understand this list, like learn the Latin names. And now you have to memorize, um, you know, how to do volume calculations. And now you have to do, and yeah, you, you start to get, and I get it. It's a, it's an industry. So you have to understand these things, but yeah, like slowly over time, you do start to kind of get desensitized. I would think to, and it, it takes a conscious effort and you still love trees. You still appreciate them, right? You, I, one thing I always say is foresters didn't get into this because they love two by fours, right? That's right. <laughs> Most of most of them got into it. If in fact, probably nearly all of them got into it because they love forests and want yeah. to see them exist and perpetuate throughout time. But I will say that there, there is a, a bit of a, a shift when you're surrounded by foresters and you're surrounded by one kind of perspective. Um, it's possible to lose sight of other values and unintentionally uh, start managing forests for, you know, uninclusively. Right. So I think it's, it's totally, I think it's crucial that especially the folks who are out there every day managing forests, they need to be trying to step outside their comfort zone a little bit and just like, yeah, just sit down and, and, and try to be mindful about the forest a little bit and try to enjoy it and try and just be a little kid again and just be wowed by it. Right. Totally. Like it's, I, absolutely. Like I think that, that, that changes, it just changes the way we think about it in a huge way. And yeah. um, I think that was a, a big reason why I loved your book so much is because it was, it was, it was, it was very much, you brought in the quantification because you're obviously tracking giants. That's the whole, that's the name of the book, right? Um, but you always tied it back to the emotion and the personal connection. And cause again, we're, we're emotional beings, right? We like to quantify so we can understand, but emotion in the end is what drives us. So, yeah. Yeah, and and I'm really glad you raised that point too about people who work in the woods. Like they work mm-hmm. there because they love it, and I think that's something that um was definitely the opposite was pushed a lot when I was really part of the environmental activist conservation movement. Oh sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that like loggers are bad, and you're either for the forest or you're against it, and well, that's. It's so polarizing and just not true. Like people mm-hmm. love working in the woods and you can't just feel your way into a tree. Like you have to live for and by the forest and you do need to quantify it a certain way um, and have like know the tree's volume and understand if it's worth cutting down or not. I mean, First Nations have done this too for years that they have emotional or even mythical relationships with trees but they're also harvesting trees and use scientific methods of test holes and ways of testing like the density of a tree. Is it going to make a good canoe mm-hmm. or not? Um, but it was important for me to highlight that um, we 
we do, we are emotional creatures and we can have those relationships to the woods, even if they're, um, even if we do work in the woods, like, and you don't have to mm-hmm. be constantly overwhelmed with feelings in the forest and, and think like this being and this tree and who are you? Like as a forester, they would take forever to <laughs> get through your day. Oh, um, yeah. But to yeah, think no, about sure. the, yeah. the interconnectivity of the forest and think if I cut yeah. this tree down, is that going to have ramifications for things around it? Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, and I think it was evident in your book as well that like, as you started, you were kind of like, okay, my friend told me I should track giants. I'm going to do that. And you were like, that was the goal. I'm going to do this. I got 52 weeks to get 43 trees and no problem. Let's do this. And as time goes on, recognizing the importance of, oh yeah, you're missing the forest for the tree. And you're, you started to learn, like you started to appreciate the ecology of it a little bit more and and the interactions and the interconnectivity. Right. And yeah, like we have to, I think the idea of sustainability, right? Like it's a pretty new idea, right? And it's only a few decades old, really. And like the word sustainability anyways, right? And so when we start to think about that, we realize that we've only really started to put a dent in what that means and how that, and to me, it's a tapestry, right? Mm-hmm. If, 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 if the forest is a tapestry of values and, and, and inputs and outputs and by removing one thread, the whole thing starts to come undone, right? So it needs to be, we need to be thinking about all of these things at once in order to, and we can't be assuming things, right? In order for it to be done properly. And um, so, yeah, it's important to quantify, but it's important to also hedge your bets and go, okay, maybe let's assume that I don't maybe know everything about something. And I, I really appreciate balanced perspectives, yeah. people who are are just representing that like to show both. And I, I like that about the book. It, it just it helped me to understand, um, at least in your your headspace around these ideas, right? Around big trees and, and, and where we sit and, and how we should contemplate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you. And that's what's exciting about the registry is it is democratic in that anyone can nominate a tree Mm. to it. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. citizen scientists, or I think the preferred term these days is community scientists, can you find this tree and say, is this like, is this worth noting? And Mm -hmm. I think this is the biggest, but does that like, does that matter? Or like what, or is I often joke in my house, like, what is bigness? Like, what does that really mean? Um, and that uh, a forest technologist or a forester would need to verify those measurements, but it really is something that everyone can engage in. And yeah. then you start to think beyond the registry, like you don't have to nominate it for it to be significant. That yeah. little tree, like I, I uh, planted um, a couple of conifers in my backyard and they're super small, right? But they're yeah, significant yeah. <laughs> to me because I'm like, yeah, I like, raised you from a sapling and and that's the thing about trees is they don't have to be any one way for us to appreciate them or value them. And mm-hmm. that was a big realization I had around this idea of the interconnectivity. Um, mm-hmm. As you said about sustainability, like it's the term is pretty new. Uh, and the concept, of course, has been around forever. But um, this idea of sustainability of a life is pretty key to me because of going through the burnout and because of the work I do. So I often work with people who are struggling to fit creative aspects into their life, like writing a book, for example. And I often say like writing needs to feel possible and you have to sustain your own creative life. And so what would that look like for you? And usually it means turning down the pressure of that thing 
And that was my actual way into finding these trees. It's like, have you ever read The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson? I haven't, but I know of it. Yeah. yeah. So the premise of that is he goes out to like to I think it's the Himalayas to find this elusive snow leopard and he's tracking this animal that very few people have seen and he's obsessed with this quest to find the snow leopard and then he realizes um it's not about that. Like it's not about the snow yeah. leopard and the snow leopard is probably watching him this whole time and yeah. and, <laughs> well, and almost it's, definitely yeah. Yeah and he's like if I'm worthy <laughs> of seeing the snow leopard I will and it becomes this big Buddhist parable, right? But that's the thing about trees is once you stop looking for them, they start to reveal themselves. It's like in the coast here, the coastal forests, it's very typical. You'll see hemlock, cedar, Douglas fir, and sometimes you'll see a Pacific yew. And a Pacific yew is such a slender tree and is a great example of the, even though it's old, it's not very big. And mm -hmm. it's got this red, blue bark and it was harvested um to like a great extent in the 50s and 60s because it has this chemical called taxol, which is still an ingredient in chemotherapy, um, I think specifically for breast cancer. And But the thing about the U is it's, if you go looking for a U, you're not going to find it. But if you, <laughs> if you stop looking, you'll suddenly have one in front of you. And yeah, I've yeah, found yeah. so many U's in the past few months and they're always a treat. And this is the thing about like looking for the biggest and the best in a life is that you end up missing a lot along the way. And I realized that the source of my burnout was that I was just like trying to hit those mega achievements like career and be promoted to editor and maybe publisher and mm -hmm. buy a house and find a mate and all those things. But I was missing out on these basic joys in my life. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I don't know if it was an intentional Buddhist saying, but if you go looking for you, you're not going to find you. I was like, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Or and my friend Kate, she says in the book, like, to find the tree, you must become the tree. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Let's go yeah. with it, right? Yeah. Where would I be if I was a tree? Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's so funny. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, 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 it's fun to, yeah, to think these things. And I agree. Like, I, I had a, a thought arose to me when I was reading the book that, like, okay, you're a writer. Uh, you you come up with this project. You're like, okay, I'm going to write a book about big trees, and you must have expectations on yourself of I'm going to achieve some kind of transcendence or some kind of personal realization, and I'm going to have this wisdom to share that I can write into this book. And because I feel like that's that's what, that's that's what I would be doing, right? Like if I was writing a book, I'd be like, okay, if I'm writing a book, there must be a purpose. What is the purpose? Uh, okay, I have to achieve this goal, like these three things or whatever. That's what I'm trying. That's what I'm aiming for. Yeah, that must be a tremendous amount of pressure, and it must be also incredibly challenging while you're doing the thing for the book that you're going to later write about. You're in your own head thinking, is this the transcendence moment? Is this the, where do we, and like, I can't imagine how. Uh, Always. Yeah, like how confusing it must be to be like, wait, am I being true? Am I telling the true story or am I making shit up right now in my oh own my head? God. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I just, I could see that. I would, I would struggle with that. So I wanted to ask you about that. Now, you know, why writers are uniquely neurotic because we're always like, is this a story? Is this a narrative? Uh, um, am I living my true narrative right now? Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 And like I said, the, the project started as a, as a blog, um, 
But a few months into it, I was thinking, you yeah, know, this is a book because that's the thing about editors is that we uh. we look for books, and I thought, okay, that and that put a ton of pressure on the project because I thought. I, yeah. like I really have to find these trees. Like it has to be this book. But how do I write about forty-three trees? That seems like a lot of trees to write about. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'd originally wanted to write something that was like the Golden Spruce by John Valiant, which I think is like the quintessential BC forest book. And I realized, thankfully, that I couldn't write that book because John Valiant is just beyond me in terms of skill. But also, I would have to write it 43 times. You know? Right. <laughs> so it didn't make sense. It's a different book. Yeah. Right. And so the the project itself, it started to really morph as like, okay, how am I going to actually tell this story? So the book took me about three years of traveling and learning and reading and writing and editing to, to actually pull it off. And those three years were really challenging because I, I was really, I was working this very busy day job. And I would look for trees on the weekends. But as everyone knows, who writes a book around their life is like that weekend is like the prime time to write your book. And so I felt like I could do one thing or the other. And I had all these notes about trees and like little hand drawn maps. And I wasn't having much success even finding the trees. And I didn't have the time to write about them. So I thought this project is just dying on the vine. Like, I don't know how this is going to be a book. And uh, and I had a contract by then with Greystone and I thought many times about just writing to them, be like, I can't do it. Like, let's yeah. cancel the <laughs> it's contract. Not working yeah, out. It's not working yeah. out. I can't write this book that I, that I really hope to write. And one of the turning points for me was, um, I, so I had the blog and I had been diligently going out every weekend and updating it every Sunday or Monday. And I stopped doing that because I was still going out on the weekends and looking for trees, but I wasn't finding anything. And I was just getting more and more frustrated. And my friend said, my friend Ronnie said, you know, you haven't been writing your blog. And I said, did you stop the project? And I said, no, I, I've been doing it more than ever. I just haven't been finding these trees. Yeah. And I don't think it's worth worthwhile to write about the failure. And she said, no, that's what we're actually interested in. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay. So that was, that was a turning point for me with this book. I thought really tree tracking is, it's so much about like, we use a lot of the hunting metaphors, like you're bagging a tree, you're tracking it, you're hunting it, it's your quarry. But it's actually scoring it, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and then the champions and ranking mm -hmm. them, all of that stuff. Um, I realized it's actually like a creative project. And I thought that mm -hmm. the tree project was going to turn me into this more adventurous version of myself where I'd be like mm -hmm. rugged, like a tree planner or like, yeah. <laughs> like a tugboat operator, like I could really yeah. just paddle my own canoe kind of thing, like really be yeah. sustainable in the, or um, self-sufficient in the forest. And yeah. it wasn't that. It just made me more of myself, which is like an artist in the woods. And when I realized that I was trying to think of the project like a writer, and I needed to think of it more like an editor, then I could change the ending. Because writers often get stuck on what the ending's going to be. Uh. And they think... 
oh, I've, I've figured it out and now I just need to write towards it. But why is it so difficult? That's because they, <laughs> it's because they need to shift the ending, right? And uh, like some writers don't do this. Like John Irving is famed for, he always knows the last line of his books before he starts writing. And then he writes towards that last line. Oh, but I John see. Irving's in his own camp, right? He's <laughs> like, I'm not John Irving either. Pretty big guy, and, yeah. Yeah, and so... Once I realized that as an editor, I could just change the ending and I realized it was about success and failure and creativity and how we put these immense pressures on ourselves, then then I yeah. could finish the book. And yeah. I went through like 12 drafts of this book and it finally started to feel more like me when it, it felt more like a text message exchange with a friend because what you read is exactly how I speak. And it's, I have to be comfortable with that. I'm like, I'm not going to sound like John Valiant or Robin Wall Kimmerer. I just sound like me. who's like yeah. a kid from Surrey who loves Wayne's world. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's going to be in there. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, I, I find that always so refreshing though. Like, I mean, you know, yeah, you get your you get your writers like um, David Foster Wallace. Yes, like that guy when he wrote, it was like you'd be reading something, and then I, my mind would go off on a tangent, some some weird like side thought that uh, while I'm still reading something else, and then two lines later, he calls me out on the tangent. He's like, "Yeah, you were probably just daydreaming about this." And I'm like, "What the." <laughs> How, did how does you, he know? Yeah, how did <laughs> you do that? Like, and but at the same time, I found his I find his writing difficult to like. I have to get myself into the groove of his writing to really appreciate it. I can't just like pick it up and like randomly read it. It's not doable. You need to be ready to like engage really, really, really intensely and like ask yourself questions, and that's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So as much as I I am blown away by that his talent. And ability to write and, and ability to see the world and explain it. Um, books like yours, where you're you 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 weren't trying to be anything. Mm -hmm. Like it was you were you were just like, this is me. This is my experience. It's very refreshing, and I think that is something in the age of social media that's been nice. And that you do get the odd you know influencer or whatever person out there who realizes like, no, the way to to do this life is to just be authentic, and that will allow you to see your dreams come true and see those things happen right and um i appreciate that about the book because it, it, it's clear that you're not like trying to tell anybody anything you're like hey this is what i experienced what do you think and it's it's cool it makes for an easy read and it makes for a good thought-provoking read too right thank you yeah that was definitely my intention with it and i think we we do create these like information cliques i remember like years ago going into a bank and trying to learn about investing. And that's the worst way to learn is like <laughs> from an investment banker. Um, but then they don't even know what they're doing. They they're don't just, know what they, they're doing. They, no, they don't. They really so, don't. I've yeah, never, but, I've never met one that knows much. Yeah. <laughs> right. But I, I left feeling like, Oh, like I don't, now I know less than I did. And, and it's, I think that's such a terrible way to learn things. Like we need to be supporting yeah. each other. And what was great about this project is that the tree tracking community are so welcoming and generous. And once I allowed them to help me, I could actually learn a lot more because again, I felt like I had to know it all already before starting. And yeah. otherwise, what was the point? And would really be hard on myself for not knowing how to measure a tree from the beginning. But then 
why would I know how to measure a tree? Like, why would, yeah. Why, like, yeah, this yeah. is not a typical activity. And <laughs> um, so I would content myself uh, at first with, um, like, when my first tree I go see, I bring a tennis ball for scale. And then I just take a photo. And I'm like, someone will tell me if this is the right tree. I'm like, I think it's the right tree. And it looks pretty big. And my boyfriend at the time, he, uh, he termed like it's the quantif the Lewis quant the Lewis assessment of bigness like it's a qualitative Lewis assessment. assessment of yeah, the Lewis qualitative <laughs> assessment of bigness is like this tree is big, <laughs> that tree not so much. And I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah like yeah. that's that's kind of all I have capacity for. And now I realize that I can learn to measure a tree. Like it's not that complicated, and yeah. it's like anything. Like as I say in the book, easy is what you know how to do, and. Um, but we all feel like we have to prove ourselves by our knowledge and that our knowledge, we know this much and you don't know that much. And it's mm. just a silly way to be because you could just teach each other. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's especially – I find it especially interesting in um, in professional circles as well, right? Because like obviously if you're a professional in some in, in some aspect, whether it's you know particle physics or or – yeah tree physiology or whatever it might be yeah you know a lot about that very specific thing but you may not know a lot if you're a tree physio you might not tree physiologist you might not know a lot about soil structure or, or you know carbon accounting or you might not know a lot about habitat or like so like there's and so being able to like we live in the age of specialization and being able to open up and not have an ego about what you know and being able to learn new things and listen to people who have different perspectives it's it just rounds you out so much better and just allows you to think about these these big topics like how do you manage a landscape that has 8 billion people on it right yeah. like in a sustainable way like i don't know we're still figuring that out we have no idea we're just like kind of chugging along like i think we'll do this now wait that didn't work let's try something else and it's like it's this challenge because like we want we want people to be okay we want people to thrive um i don't think anyone there's no uh there's no politicians out there saying we should have like a black dot policy or anything like that you know what i mean like the what's a black dot yeah, so policy that's that like uh i think it's from uh it's from one of those uh the pirate uh, stories where like oh. uh, they hand out pieces of paper and if you get the black dot oh, yeah. you're the one that walks the plank kind of thing so like yeah no i don't think anyone's saying that yeah we need to like kill half the population so we can be sustainable no. on the planet no we're trying to figure it out with what we got yeah and so yeah it's a challenging thing and um but i think sometimes sometimes it comes down to a simple fact of just like hey rare things should be protected like yeah i think that's I think that's a head. That's a bet we can hedge pretty safely, you know. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. But sadly, is not totally the case, at least in BC. And the thing about the registry, the common misconception with the registry is that once you put a tree on the registry, boom, it's protected, and it can't right. be cut down. And that's that's not the case at all. Like, I mm -hmm. could have a big like I ha I'm looking at a big Douglas fir right now. And mm. I could just go cut that down if I wanted to, because it's on my property right. and mm -hmm. it's not protected. And even if I had put it in the registry. And mm. so some of these trees grow on private lands and some grow on parklands. And the ones that are in parklands are technically protected, but some grow in woodlots and could be harvested. Um, Western Forest Products is a timber company out here in the province, uh, in BC. 
And they are doing um, a good job of working with the BC Big Tree Registry to actually find and nominate a lot of these trees. And I think they've nominated well over 100 trees. Um, mm. And they will retain them when they're in with in certain sizes. But that's the, that's the thing, again, about if you're only quantifying a tree, is that uh, there's different sizes based on the species of tree. So, like, you know, some trees just have to, they, they will get that big um, before they mm. can be harvested. But if you leave a tree, if you leave most trees, they will become big. And sure. yeah, so the tall trees well, At right least now, bigger anyways. They yeah. will become bigger, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or the, in their context, yeah. like a sicka alder sure. can be big, but not mm. that big. Um, but the tallest trees right now, um, they might not be retained based on those size limits, um, but if you give them a few years, they will girth out and become big, and then they would have been protected. And sure. that's the thing is that we're cutting down things without giving them the chance to become rare. And mm-hmm. I think that's the real tragedy of forestry on the coast is that we have logged out a lot of these big, big trees thinking that it is a renewable resource. But mm-hmm. those trees that are cut down and harvested, like um, you can cut down a forest and replant it and then harvest it again. And that's, that's one way to manage a forest. But if you're cutting down these trees when they're only 40 years old, you're never going to achieve an old growth forest again. So are we replanting to cut or are we replanting to make this older landscape? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's where we're at this intersection in time, right? Mm -hmm. Where, like I said, we we're, we're, we're trying to figure out what sustainability means and it's um, it's beyond it's beyond stained yield, sustained yield, right? It's, yeah. it's, we have to be, it's, it's not just about, it's not sustainable for degrading the landscape period, right? Like the whole point is that all of these values need to be sustainable over time. And there's one, one uh, gentleman that I have on quite regularly. Um, I've had him on like three or four times, uh, Milo Mihalovic and, and, and we had a big conversation about values, right? And how forestry, um, for a long time and, and, it was it was basically just like sustained yield with with constraints, right? Mm-hmm. So we constrained based off okay, you you can't be too close to the watershed, you can't be too close to an eagle nest, you can't be too close to the uh, you know the salt lick, uh, you can't be too close to this, and we'll just put buffers, and so we'll do so it's sustained yield management while we constrain these other values so that we don't affect them, right? Yeah, and we assumed that that was enough, and it's moved on now to to something where people are starting to think okay we maybe we should stop assuming that that's enough and now we need to start looking into how do we actually not just avoid wrecking those values but how do we actually improve those values on the landscape while we're moving timber right yeah and i think that's the that's the kind of the new the new forestry the new way of thinking um i don't know how long it takes for for like again i'm not a coastal forester i can't speak to the methodology or anything i can speak to alberta i can understand that ecology but there i can't speak to it um so i won't pretend to know but i know that um like you i'm sure you've read uh, Gary Merkel and uh, the other gentleman's the old growth report. I forget the strategic what it's called, review. The, yes, yeah. that yeah. one. The strategic review. Yeah, I've had Gary on a couple times. Yeah, and he talks about all of these things, right? And this balance and the need for a tiered system of management. And it all came down to just like rethinking how we approach this. Right? That's and just it. Like, yeah, just we need to be in a different mindset when, yeah. we, when we make these decisions and 
We can't be making assumptions on values. We need to be measuring values and making decisions based off that quantification, right? Um, yeah, it's, I mean, there's still a long way to go, I think, in, in, in a lot of places, but it's, I think people are trying. <laughs> I think they really are. And I think in many yeah. ways, like in general, I feel like we're in this messy middle that was accentuated by the pandemic. We realized, you know, that we're disconnected people, there's this epidemic of loneliness and uh, technology. Is it good or bad? Like it, neither, right? Yeah. It's just, we have values right. that we apply to it. And the same is true of the forest. And what I like about Gary Merkel and that report is it really calls for a paradigm shift. And yes. it's just like, here's, here's where we are. These things are working. These things, not so much. These things we don't know yet. And a tree, as I say in the book, like a tree is what you make of it. And it's either big or it's small or it's a bush or it's a tree or it's it's timber or it's not. And it's it really is um the forest the forest is just like the forest is a forest. It's it's nothing but that. But we apply values to it. And as you said earlier, like it we it can be a symbol of our our greed or it can hold our guilt or it can hold our deepest hopes. Like Mm -hmm. Like I really love gardening and what I love about gardening is it's such a manifestation of hope, right? There's so much contained in the seed and you're like, I'm just going to create the conditions for growth and I'm going to let you flourish and we'll see what happens. Um, but I think with forestry these days, um, I, I would love us to just stop, like just pause. Mm -hmm. And like Bill McKibben, who's a, fellow writer and environmentalist he has this great saying he's like when you're when you realize you're in a hole stop digging <laughs> right like that's yeah. just it like you yeah you just pause and be like is this working it's like a conflict like a, in a relationship like okay yeah. what's happening here and so if we look at um how forestry has evolved i think there's a lot of promise in that and mm. i've been in tons of forests that have been denuded and they were cut down to the creek and those forests they they lose something and they still have this magic sure. to them and you can look at that and be like wow that was so short-sighted like why did they cut down to the creek well because that made sense at the time like why wouldn't you cut those trees they grow so big on the creek yeah they do um, grow nice yeah yeah and so now in in 30 years people will look at the forestry today and be like why did they do that way absolutely yeah yeah and yeah. so all we can do is just i think learn from the past and um if you think about like Easter Island, right? Like why did that civilization collapse? Probably because they cut down the trees or Ireland. We think about Ireland as being these rolling hills, like this green, like this emerald green landscape. But Ireland wasn't always like that. Ireland was forested. Ireland yeah. has been mostly deforested for agricultural reasons because we put a value on agriculture over forestry at that time. Um, yeah. And also for colonial reasons, right? So, mm -hmm the Brits or the British people came over and cut down a lot of the timber and took it for timbers and housing. And that was a decision. And now there's a decision to rewild some of Ireland. And like, we can mm -hmm. make those decisions in our creative lives and our daily lives and in our forestry practices. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and the coastal BC is a very unique 
forestry situation, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 got a lot of things going on that aren't going on anywhere else, and it's not the what's what's true there is not true elsewhere in the in the country, right? So it's yeah. it's very unique, and those outside of it can't really can't really speak to it. Like I can't really speak to what's going on, but I can I can trust people like Gary Merkel to yeah. understand it, right? And um and I do, right? And which is why I've had him on, I think, three times. Because he's <laughs> yeah. just he was a very well balanced and well thought out and nuanced perspective and just a brilliant mind, right? So mm-hmm. um yeah. And I, I I think that's why I wanted to have you on regarding these big trees and because and, yeah, they are this totem and they are they do hold this kind of hope and this guilt and this value to people that may never ever see them, but they know that they exist and that gives them some kind of some kind of, uh, I don't know, hopeful feeling, magical, what, like with spiritual connection to the forest, knowing that Hyperion is a real tree that's yes. however old it is. I don't know how old it is, but it's 100 meters tall or whatever. And it's just this enormous whale of a tree that lives currently. And that harkens back to an age before settlers were here and before things were the way they were. And that that tells a story without a doubt. Yeah. And it's Something that I thought was interesting too that I meant to bring up earlier, but it's just kind of a small side note. But like you mentioned, um, old trees are not necessarily big trees and big trees aren't necessarily old trees, right? Mm-hmm. I think about that. Like some of the oldest trees, well, I, I would say, yeah, most of the oldest trees in Alberta, for example, the ones that are, you know, four or 500 years old, they're at the top of the mountain or in the middle of a muskeg, in the middle of a black spruce bog, right? And it's right. This, they're this six or seven or 10 meter tall black spruce tree that's four or 500 years old and just looks gnarly as hell, but it's still kicking it. Right. Like it's like, yeah. It's, so there's, there's, I mean, that's never at risk of being harvested because it's just not that, but it's, but it has a huge amount of value in that. You're like, Hey, this is a landscape that has it in the boreal, the main disturbance is burning. Right. And it hasn't been completely a hundred percent burnt in four or 500 years. What does that mean for the undergrowth? What kind of plants grow here that don't grow elsewhere? What kind of ecology? What's what's the system? This is must be different than the hundred year old stand, right? Yeah. And that has a huge amount of value in and it's not just big trees in my mind, right? Mm-mm. It's just things things that are that are rare in this day and age, things that are that are hard to get back, right? They're important to to point them out and to make them some kind of totem, I think, for the public so that um, even though that might be putting them at risk, like you mentioned, right? It's it's, but it's. I think it's important in this day and age when we again we have eight billion people on the planet, and um, we need to start making decisions on what's important to us. And in order to do that, we need we need people to be to at least know what exists, right? Yeah, so it's that's right. Yeah, yeah. I I, I appreciate this this exploration into big trees and to <laughs> into you know, your, your emotional connection to them and your, your personal experience with learning about ecology. And it is clear that you, you developed a much deeper connection to the forest around you, um, as opposed to seeing the trees only, right. And being at all with the trees. Now you, it was clear that you're, you're looking down as well and you're appreciating the forbs and the shrubs and the, and the mosses that exist and the fungi and the, and just like appreciating the interconnections. And that's such a deeper appreciation than just going like, damn, that's a big tree. That's really yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. And, and I've, I've yeah. come a long way from kicking myself for not knowing 
like not being able to tell a hemlock apart from a Sitka spruce, apart from a Douglas fir. And at a certain age, they all kind of look the same. And then there's all these minute differences between the needles. And I'm better at it now. But um, like when I was on that hike on the weekend, um, I was just like, this type of lichen is this, and this does this, and this. And my and my boyfriend was like, you really know a lot about the forest. And I was like, yeah. Like when you start to pay attention to everything, like these things reveal themselves. And that is um, – I think that's just a lovely way to live. And I went, um, I went on a walking tour of Stanley park a couple of weeks ago. And for listeners who are outside of Vancouver, so Stanley park is like central park in Vancouver. It's this jewel of Vancouver and it's, uh, I can't remember how many acres, but hundreds of acres of forest. And one of my friends, Colin Spratt has this walking tour called ancient trees of Vancouver. And he took us on this tour of the trees. And I, learned so much about trees and how trees like he's like hmm, does do you know how a tree grows and I was like no I don't actually know how a tree grows and when I just became the student again and didn't kick myself for not knowing I yeah. learned a ton about trees and that's what's been exciting about where I live now so I did leave Vancouver during the pandemic, you know, novel idea. I think I was the only one to leave the city um, <laughs> to go to a small community. You're going to travel during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to leave it all behind and use the internet. Um, yeah, yeah. So I live on this island called Gabriola Island in Sunamuk Territory, and it's right off the coast of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. And the thing about the east coast of Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands where I am is they're in this rain shadow and they're very, very dry landscapes. And they have, even though it's just like two hours from Vancouver, it's a totally unique ecosystem or a totally distinct eco ecosystem from the really damp coastal forest that I'm so used to and used to just like rain rolling in over the mountains. But here it's just yeah. really, really damp. The trees are smaller and it's a, technically a Douglas fir zone. Um, so there's lots of Douglas fir and there's Gary Oak and Arbutus and Cedar. Um, but the trees are really small, um, partially because of that landscape, like the the reduced rainfall and, and all that, but also because this island was mostly forested. <laughs> and, like the yeah. trees were cut down in the first half of the 20th century. So there are big stumps around. Um, mm. But what's unique about this island, I feel, is that it is very forested now, like it's reforested and mm. there's just a lot of trees and it has its own big tree registry, mm. <laughs> the Gabriola cool. big tree registry. Um, yeah, yeah. None of the trees. Did that you are, start it? No, not at all. <laughs> no, none of the trees that appear on that registry are on the BC big tree registry as far as I know. Um, right. But it's like, that's the thing about these registries is it's just all context, right? Like, these trees are smaller, yeah. but they're big in this context. And um, it's a very forested island, but the trees are all really small. Like they haven't yeah. achieved that same size that they did. Um, so I find it really fascinating. Like this is the thing about looking at something based on size is it like turns your brain inside out a lot of the time. Oh, big time. Big time. So yeah. like looking at a huge tree, you're like, wow, this tree, like, it's like, you know, that cartoon character with your eyes going, you know, like yeah, this tree yeah, is yeah. like a thousand years old or, or a big mm. lonely Doug, um, 
Greg and some students just cored it this week. So they took a core sample and they determined that it's 932 years old. And it's like, what? That yeah. is so many years, but also it's so old, but also not that old compared to like this yellow cedar. Like, and then, then it becomes ridiculous, right? Like, cause yeah. like, of course it's big and old and yeah. anyway, it's, it's just a really the funny part of this project. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think the recognition, I think the recognition that forests are not static, right? That they are yeah. forests themselves, not just individual trees, but forests themselves are, um, for lack of a better word, they're they're their own organism, right? That they are they're constantly changing. There's constantly disturbance. There's constantly things changing, and it's it's not like every tree that's has the potential to reach 900 years old, right? Like they they. That's that's just not going to be the case. But I think a lot of the, from what I gather, a lot of the 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 back and forth about like, okay, how many, how much should be old growth, like coastal old growth, and how much should be um, mature growth, and how much should be younger, and like, what is that? What is that landscape supposed to? What is the ideal landscape, right? Like, mm-hmm. if we're going to design a landscape from scratch, we're God. We're just going to. I'm going to build. <laughs> The perfect ecological balance with, uh, you know, indigenous people on it that know how to know how to do their own stewardship and manage for themselves and provide back to the landscape. And that's what we're going to do. What does that look like? And that's what I think that's where a lot of the discussion and argument is, 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 is right now, right? Is that there's, there's people that know us have a certain set of skills a certain set of knowledge and they're saying this is what this is what i think and then there's other people saying well this is what i think and they have a different perspective and a different and we're trying to put these two together in a way right we're trying it's a and we're trying to be like okay how do these fit right and what is the truth and we don't know and uh but we do know that we've harvested a whole shit pile of really really old really really big trees and we, we know that so we could use that as a starting point. It was fascinating to to explore that thought process, right? Of the from from someone who may who who doesn't have a historical Western education on on forest and forest ecology, right? And to watch you develop that understanding of ecology and the lack of of a static nature of this being that it is like half the trees that you went to see, half the champions you found, you showed up and you're like, well, this tree is almost dead or this tree doesn't exist. It is dead. It fell over. And this one is. And so that was a, that was an interesting point to make, right? Like yeah. these, cha- these things are changing and they are really old and that's great, but they will die eventually, whether it's from natural causes or climate change or whatever. But um, the only way we continue to have this is by keeping this in, in our mind, and and managing for it for generations to come, right? So it's yeah, yeah, and managing the trees for what they are, because not all trees are designed to live until they're nine hundred. Um, like some trees just have an eighty-year life cycle. Like balsam fir around here, it doesn't live that long, and it tends to rot from the top. So it's like kind of a problem tree, yeah. you know, or like an alder. Alders spring up everywhere, um, but they don't live that long. And so if we think about all trees they should be big and they should be old. And it's like, no, they, they don't like trees can just be trees. Or Pando, for example, right? I think Pando is yeah. an excellent example of that. And it's so, um, yeah, it's like, I guess I should explain it for just in mm. case folks don't know, but Pando is a, Pando is, uh, it's on the list for one of the top two biggest organisms 
on the planet and no one really knows for sure if it's that one or this fungus that I think exists somewhere, but it's like a moss feature or something. Um, and what Pando is, is it's this collection. It's a, it's an Aspen clone, a trembling Aspen clone with, I think there's, there's tens of thousands of trees in it and it's, it's been carbon dated. The root system has been carbon dated to be 80,000 years old. And that's significant because that's how Aspen, Aspen clones, um, they exist. I know you know this, but they exist in a way that is, uh, the trees can die. They're like the fruiting body of the fungus, right? The, the the mushroom can pop up and die, but the actual organism is underground, right? The rooting system exists. So the genetics are the same. So they're saying that that, that organism, that Aspen clone could be, what was it, like 80,000 years or something old? I can't remember the figure, but it's absurd. something mind-boggling. Yeah. Yeah, like it, 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 it didn't have glaciation, so it's been around for so long. <laughs> Yeah. And like that is to the unassuming eye, if someone's just to walk through that, they would just assume, look at this like tiny patch of, you know, like 18 meter tall, scraggly looking aspen trees. And yeah. they wouldn't, if you didn't know the ecology, if you didn't know the backstory, if you didn't know the, you know, the succession of the forest and how it works, you might not appreciate that. Listen, this, this is probably the oldest thing on the planet that's alive. And you're like, damn, that's something else, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't remember the exact. Maybe it was forty thousand. I can't remember. It's it's tens of thousands it's, of years it's old. It's incredibly old. Yeah. 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 And that has an incredible amount of value, regardless of the fact that it's not a big tree, right? And or it's, yeah, yeah, it's not timber that we want to harvest, right? Right. Like, not yeah. like I think each distinct tree is not that big or special. It's special because yeah. it's connected. Yeah. yeah. What I came away with in the book was it's important to. It's important to be inclusive of all these values and all these thought processes and to to not be assuming of things before we we cast judgment or, or, or build our own perspective on it. That's going to be – we're going to set in stone and, you know, etch into the <laughs> – oh, So, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah it, was a, it, was a, it was a refreshing book to, to get those kind of thoughts and it's nice for me to step outside of the, the science of it and to step inside the emotion of it for a little while and kind of go, yeah – you're right. That is why I like trees. Because they make me feel good. Right? Like in the end of the day, yeah. trees make me feel good. And that's why right. I do this. So it's that yeah. matters. Yeah. But I should also say that trees didn't always make me feel good. Like the op- without giving much away, like the opening line of the book is these fucking trees, right? Because yeah. <laughs> because I couldn't find the trees and um and that needed to shift, right? Because if you go after something hating it, like, again, you're not going to find it and it's just going to make you miserable. Um, yeah. But you said about thinking about these trees, um, like it's kind of calming. And that once I found this tree that I'd been looking for in that opening chapter, it's a Western hemlock and it grows up on a mountain in the North Shore. And I took me three tries to find it. And I was really relieved when I found it. But then when I was lying in bed that night, I could think about it growing up there and just like all the little critters moving around it and it's like swings lawfully in the breeze. And I thought this is like deeply calming and mm-hmm. I am part of this world and that tree is also part of this world. And isn't that like a lovely thing, <laughs> you know, is that we can Absolutely. change our relationship to the forest and we might've cut it down a certain way before, but it's never too late to change something, to change a practice that isn't working. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think, I think I want to leave it at that. Okay. You summed it up nicely. You just Great. put it together. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Amanda, for coming on. Like I, I really appreciated uh the clear amount of effort and time and 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 caution you took with with how you were putting this together, right? Like and it was it was just it was it was a fun read and it helped me to helped me to see a different way as well. So awesome. thank you for thanks for coming on and for and for sharing your story with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Isn't Amanda awesome, right? Her book reads just like she talks. Just funny and honest and transparent. I loved it. It was so good. So well thought out. I definitely recommend you go out and buy the book, Tracking Giants by Amanda Lewis. It's great. Uh, Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, rate and review it. Share it on social media. Push this episode online, wherever you're at, especially if you got a big following. I need the help, man. I'm, I suck at this social media thing. I just, I just do. I'm just not good at it. So help me. That'd be great. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll catch you next time. <laughs> Take it easy.